Oh, yes. Good morning again, and uh, we are super grateful that you could be here this morning. And as I, I typed online back there, if you're watching online, hang tight. Hopefully, the internet speed issue will uh, get going for us. We've we got an upload speed issue at the moment, and uh, that's what's causing those issues that you guys are having at home. So we apologize. Unfortunately, it's completely out of our hands. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about it in this moment. So hang in there. And worst case scenario is David will get that service uploaded right after we're done as quickly as possible so you can tune in that way. All right. Um, Man, it's exciting. Spring is here. Did anybody stay up way too late watching any basketball the last couple nights besides me? Was anybody, even though they're not a fan, completely disappointed in the only team from Indiana to, to be in the tournament, and they decided to leave as quickly as they could? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, never. I should never, ever pick them. But anyway, um, I should know better. I just should. Uh, it, is, it is great to be with you this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to, before we open his word. <sighs> Father God, uh, despite the distractions around us, despite all that, that happens behind the scenes and, and things that are going on. Father, we know that your spirit is in this place. Father, we fully rely on you and your power and your wisdom in our lives. And so, Father, just let your word be what speaks today as we open it together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am serious about the Chosen series. Take me up on that challenge this week. Uh, The episodes are only about 30 minutes long, 40, something like that. They're not very long at all. Super easy to do, and we'll get those links out to you as well, all right? As a part of this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look just at the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. He is on an absolute mission, and he's executing that mission to perfection, as you would expect from Jesus. He's protecting that mission. Nothing can happen out of the, uh, the previously put into place time frame that God wanted for this all to happen, and everything happened had to happen just right. And so Jesus had to move about perfectly, but he's not backing off from anything. He is doing the exact same things he's always done. His claims about himself remain the exact same. His teachings, his teachings are very consistent. While the threats continue around him, his miracles continue to be passed out. The religious leaders and the political leaders are working overtime to try to eliminate this guy and the threat that he poses. So he comes to town. When he gets to town, they throw him this parade. He's commanded to get them all to stop, and he rejects those calls because the people, even if they don't cry out, he said the rocks will. He comes to the temple, and he begins teaching and preaching, and and he makes a mess of the place as he exposes the fraud and corruption that exists within that temple. Privately, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's weeping. He's weeping over the city. He's weeping because of the people. He knows that so many from the crowd that was just praising him will soon be shouting, crucify him in just a few days. But the tears go further, and Jesus, in his all-knowing abilities, knows what's bound to happen to this great city. As it's completely destroyed, the temple itself is completely torn apart. Countless lives lost, and he reveals the why. Why? Because they did not recognize that this was the moment. This was the time of God's coming. And within 40 years, the city as they knew it would be completely gone. Privately, he's sharing with those very closest to him that, hey guys, you're not going to have this light with you much longer. Please, please, please take advantage of it because soon I will be lifted up to draw all men to me. He reveals that his death is imminent to those closest few. And in this final week, as Jesus prepares to fulfill his entire 
mission, his entire reason for coming to earth. He continues to show and tell people exactly who he is. And how do people respond? Well, we're going to dive into God's word in the book of John today to start with. We'll be moving around through multiple gospels, but we'll be in John chapter 12 to start with, beginning in verse 37. John writes these words, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe. This was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, John writes, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that neither can see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. Somehow, someway, Isaiah was able to see Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him without having known him. Now, I'm imagining myself being John and how disheartening this must be because the apostle John writes this much, 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 much later in life than the other gospels were written. And he's reflecting on everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said while they were together and I can just see him sitting there at whatever area he was, riding on this parchment, just shaking his head, probably with a tear in his eyes, as he writes the words, man, they still wouldn't believe. Could you imagine the pain in his heart because he was still experiencing that in that day? Now, a lot of people would ask when they read this passage and they read those Old Testament prophecies, why would God harden their hearts? How does that work? What's going on there? Why would God keep them from seeing who Jesus really was? And it's a great question. And so I found a really good explanation for this idea to, to share with you as a part of this message. Jesus is continuing to back up his claims of being God through these miracles and through his teachings. But people would still not believe. Now, the word that's used here in the Greek is a word that's very different than words we use. It's a continuing, ongoing thing. Correctly translated, it would say, we're not believing. It was a continual unwillingness to turn to Jesus by all of these people. So this was progressively hardening themselves. It was a cooperative effort between man and God. Because as man turned their back and would not believe on God, then God gradually begins to withdraw his spirit from those people, and they're less likely. Not they can't, not they won't, but they're less likely then to turn back to God. As individuals turn away from Jesus, and he would share these parables with them, it would actually drive many of them farther away. Why? Because they wouldn't be able to see or understand or hear the truth that Jesus was speaking. Why? Because they refused to believe. Their hearts were not open to it. Their unbelief would keep them from being able to see him. So it wasn't God hardening their hearts. That sounds so cruel. It's a combination of the two. John goes on to reveal another layer that's not found in the other gospels. It's in verse 42 of the same passage. It says, yet at the same time, so he just wrote, man, the people just still won't believe. At the same time, though, many, even among the leaders, he said, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the human praise more than praise from God. I can only imagine again that John knew some of these people, and he had very specific conversations with those people trying to convince them to follow Jesus in the same way that he had, and they refused. 
because following Jesus would just cost them too much. Their vision was so focused on the here and the now and the world. And losing your synagogue, losing your church, being forced out of it would be a hard thing for them to take, for sure. But they wouldn't lay those earthly gains down in order to follow Jesus, even though they believed. Church, the time's coming and may already be here where it's going to begin to cost us something in this country to follow our Jesus. That word cancel culture, yeah, it's coming for you. And it's coming for me. And what we're doing right now online, it's coming. Absolutely it is. So what are we going to do about it? Are we still going to admit (laughs) that we believe in Jesus? Are we still going to follow his ways and be bold and stand for that? Or will we wind up like these leaders who believe but only in private? And is that belief at all? (laughs) Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Yes, he just said it. I'm God. (laughs) I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person, for I didn't come to judge the world but to save it. However, there is a judge. A lot of people like to put the period there and say, okay, wow, Jesus doesn't judge anyone. No. No, that's not what he's saying. There is a judge. Absolutely, there is a judge for the one who rejects me. And does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them in the last day. For I did not speak them on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me. Now this is one of Jesus' final public lessons. He's reminding everyone of his purpose. He is not here to judge anyone. He came to tell the truth about God, to teach, to demonstrate the ways of God, and he is not judging them in that moment, those that reject him. However, when a person chooses to reject God, reject his words, reject his teachings, then their words, their lack of belief ultimately will condemn them. The opposite also is true, though. If you choose to believe, guess what? You're definitely not condemned. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You will be ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ and lead you to eternal life. So there is an option we all have. How do people respond? How do people react to Jesus' message? Well, it's believed that this is now the next day. And Jesus returns to the the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, the day after he messes it all up, he comes back again. Interesting. Not the first place I would go after I did something like that, but he's pretty bold, I guess. So he does that. He returns to the temple to offer yet another life lesson, but this time he's greeted by a series of questions from the religious leaders. They are trying to do anything, and I mean anything, they possibly can do to just publicly discredit him so that people will choose not to follow him anymore. They're trying to separate his followers from him by typically lying about him. The same things are done to people in power today. Let's go to Luke now. We're switching books to Luke chapter 20, if you've got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. There's some under the seats all around you. If you need a Bible, take it with you. If this holiday season is a time where you can reach out to someone that maybe doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures, take that with you and take it to them. Please, we'll buy more, okay? We want to get those in the hands of people that need them. Just for the record, this is a total side note. Probably many of you might have one, two, three, ten Bibles in your house, The majority of people don't even have one anymore. Those days are gone where people have a copy of the scriptures in their home. So don't assume that they have or even know what that book is, all right? So one day, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, 
Right, he's proclaiming the good news, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders. Now, these three groups of people do not get along at all, but they're coming together to unify, to try to trip Jesus up, and they ask him a great question. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority, Jesus? It's a great question. And Jesus, um, it, here's the thing, it, let's word it a little differently. They look at Jesus and they, Jesus, now here's the thing, we can tell that you are doing some incredible things. In fact, we don't deny that those things are happening. And if, if you read the other Gospels, particular John, I believe is where it is, they actually confess that there is nobody other than God himself who could do some of the things that Jesus is doing, and they acknowledge that. They've heard his teachings, and like, Jesus, your teachings, man, they're pretty good. They're pretty on point. But can you just tell us who gave you the permission to do this? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Because Jesus, you don't have the right permits. <laughs> you just don't have the right permits. As a matter of fact, you didn't study under any of us, so we really don't know where you got your information, so it might be a little shady. We're not sure. You don't work for us, and you don't, certainly don't work with us, so what do you think you're doing? Jesus. Now, what I love is I, I begin speculating. What all could, how all could Jesus have answered this question? Because really, they kind of got him. They really do. How are they going to, how's he going to answer? You can just imagine these men stepping back with their arms crossed, looking at you like, yeah, take that. Good luck, Jesus. How are you going to answer that one? So I began to come up with some answers, all right? Here we go. Here's, a, here's the first answer. Um, his first answer could have been something like this. Um, guys, here's the thing. My daddy said I could. <laughs> He totally could have said that and been absolutely correct, right? Now, he would have also been immediately arrested and imprisoned for blasphemy, and you know the story, and, and he would have been correct, but it wouldn't have gone quite as well. He could have answered it this way. He said, well, guys, let me think. Uh, oh, wait, I do. <laughs> That's right. I give myself permission to do this. See, he was God. So he absolutely could have answered in that way, but he sought not to. It would have been a bad choice, even though it was true. So what did he do? Well, he did something very common in his time. He answered their question with a question. Now, this wasn't, he wasn't being rude. He wasn't avoiding answering the question. This was a common rabbinical debate type of technique. So he was answering, a, a, he was giving them a question. It was a leading question. Because if they answered his question correctly, in fact, they would be answering their own question as well. All right? So here's what he said. I will also ask you a question. John's baptism. So we're talking about John the Baptist. Was it from heaven? Or was it of human origin? John was this predecessor of Jesus. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. He was also Jesus' relative. He did an awesome job. Their messages, their purposes were very, very similar, as was the source of their authority. Now, John, Jesus picked a very specific element of John's ministry. He says John's baptism. There's a reason for that. This is the point of John's ministry where the religious leaders refused to follow John any longer. It says that the religious leaders discussed it among themselves, and they say, well, you know, if we say from heaven, then he's going to ask us another question. Well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from human origin, then all the people around us will probably kill us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they gave a junior high boy answer. No, I don't know. Who did it? I don't know. It wasn't me. I, I don't have a clue. Jesus, what? Okay, we don't know. We don't know where that authority came from. Jesus goes, all right, well, that's cool. Um. <clears throat> Gosh, guess I can't tell you then either, huh? <laughs> and he just leaves him hanging. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These guys came after Jesus. They were on a hunting mission. They were in full gear, guns loaded, ready to take him out. And they just became the prey. Oops. 
There's no way they could truthfully answer Jesus' question because if they say that John's authority was from heaven, um, well, that would be the correct answer for Jesus as well, and they refused to follow John, and so they would have been admitting that they're hypocrites. But if they say that, no, it's not from heaven, then the people would have stoned them and taken them outside of the city because they believe that John was a prophet, and they are really still very, very, very upset with King Herod because he had John murdered as a prophet. So they were kind of up a creek, as they say, with their answers. That's why they refused to answer. What a cop-out. And then Jesus gives them an appropriate response. Okay, well, you know what? Since you aren't going to tell me, I'm not going to tell you, because you're not ready for the truth anyway. I've told you before. You didn't listen to me then. You're not going to listen to me now. So I'm just not going to bother at this moment in time. He's not going to give them the opportunity to take him out in that moment. Now, this is 2,000 plus years ago. The leaders of the day were questioning Jesus, his authority, his power, his words. Nothing's changed. People today are still questioning the power, the authority of Jesus and his words. They're doubting it completely. They're ignoring it in all ways and shapes of life. They don't care. Some do it intentionally. Others do it because they've never heard anything else. So the leaders are left fuming. Jesus immediately begins teaching. He goes through a series of parables related right to the people that just asked him this question, and you better believe they knew he was talking to them. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. Now, we could spend a sermon on each one of these parables, but we're going to rush through them just to get you the main point. It teaches them that it's not those that say the right things, but those that do the right things that honor God. You can say all you want, but you got to back it up with actions. Live it out. It's just as true today. The second parable, the parable of the tenants, a famous parable. It's the story of Jesus and the prophets before him as the landowner has this vineyard and he sends his servants out to go collect the money from that vineyard and the servants are beaten and they're threatened and they're killed even by the tenants just as God's servants, the prophets of old, were disrespected, beaten, and sometimes murdered by those that God sent them to. Finally, the owner decides to send his son. Surely they'll listen to him. And they have figured out, well, hey, if we get rid of the son, we own the vineyard, and they murder the son. It's a terrible story, but Jesus is just revealing that the Father has now sent him into this world, and he will be rejected by those in power so they can retain their power and their authority rather than submit to will of God. The third parable is the parable of the wedding banquet, represented by God's attempt to try to bring first those that should know better, those that should be a part of his kingdom, those that should be invited, if you will, but they all rejected the invitation. They rejected Jesus' call to come to him. And those invited mistreated and killed many of those servants, a very similar story to the parable of the tenants. The king was enraged. He sent out his army to destroy all of those that were responsible, but it didn't end there. They sent more servants out to go and invite anybody anybody within the kingdom into this new kingdom of God. Both great and small, it didn't matter who you were. This is the coming of the gospel to the world outside of the Jewish faith. Many are invited, but few are chosen, Matthew tells us as a part of this parable in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Even today, even today, this very Sunday morning across this world, the same message is being proclaimed. The truth of Christ is being put out there. We are inviting anyone who's willing to listen to come in to the family of God, but few will choose to do just that. In this final week of Jesus' life, there is nearly everything that ever took place in his entire earthly ministry. There's preaching, there's teaching, there's healing, there's anger toward those that should know better. 
And there's these questions and answers. So the Pharisees come back. They partner with someone else, the Herodians this time. This is a group of people the Pharisees really didn't like. I mean, they did not get along at all, but hey, we'll try anything to try to take this guy Jesus down. They're trying to trick him. I guess they never did figure out <laughs> that wasn't going to work. They're going to have to lie because tricking him just isn't going to happen. So they ask him a question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? It's a great question. Because Jesus has two options. He can either say no, and if he said no, the people would be like, yeah, no taxes. This is our man. Stick it to Rome. And five seconds later, Jesus would have been arrested by the Romans and taken into custody because he's creating this uprising against Rome, and that would be very bad. The opposite, well, if he said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees would say, hey, did you hear that? He's siding with Rome. We're all against. You can't side with He obviously doesn't care about you. He's just trying to make money for Rome. So what did he do? Well, in Jesus, it seems so simple to us because we read this 2,000 years later. I'm like, oh, of course he said that. No, I don't think we can really do that. He just asks for a coin. Hey, give me a coin. Flips it. Oh, Caesar. Yeah, give it to him. It's his anyway. Who cares? Oh, and by the way, give to God what's God's. They call, he calls them out because they come to him with all this false praise you know, as if they really believed in him before asking the question. Try to butter him up. Brown knows him a little bit. It didn't work at all. It's an epic failure once again for those trying to trap Jesus. The other group, the Sadducees, then come in. I'm, I, I just, I'm trying to imagine this, right? He's in the temple courts. Is there just like a line waiting? Like, okay, me? Okay, Jesus, um, it's like a press conference, and they just start asking him these questions. I don't know how this worked. I don't know if they interrupt him between teachings. I don't know. But the next question comes in, and the Sadducees ask him a question about marriage, but it's marriage in the resurrection, just like the other groups before them, this question was completely flawed because the Sadducees don't even believe in a resurrection. So there's no point for them to ask this question, and Jesus absolutely knows that. Their question was, if a woman is married, multiple people, brothers, etc., etc., and she dies eventually when she gets to heaven, who's she married to? And Jesus saw straight through it because he knows they don't believe that there is an afterlife. There is no resurrection so he goes into two answers. He first tells them, hey, marriage, marriage is awesome. It is this great thing that God created on this earth, and you should absolutely love it and enjoy it. It's beautiful. God created it for very specific reasons here on planet earth, which, by the way, those reasons do not exist in the afterlife. Therefore, marriage as we know it will not exist in the afterlife. If that's news to you, I'm sorry. Those are Jesus' words, and it is truth. Okay, we can talk about that later, but it is in there. Further, he goes on to share with them that they don't seem to know the Word of God quite as well. He's picking at their belief now that there is no afterlife. So he points out in Luke 20, verse 37, that in even the account of Moses and the burning bush, Moses shows that the dead rise, for he calls, <clears throat> he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. And he's not talking about the God of the dead. Because our God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living, for to him all are alive. So he points out the flaw in their belief system. Luke then records these words, and this is the first time we've heard this. Some of the teachers of the law responded, hmm, well said. That's a really good answer. It's almost like you know what you're talking about. And no one dared ask him any more questions. Well, except for the Pharisees. I said before, they never did get it. Um, I don't know that they ever will. They decided to ask another question, yet again, a trap to try to discredit Jesus. This time, they went to the law of Moses. Now, first of all, full disclosure, Jesus had gotten asked this question before. This wasn't the first time. 
So maybe those folks just weren't around. I don't know. But the law of Moses is the thing which all of their faith, all of their systems, all of their worship, all of their laws centered around in that Jewish community. The guy this time doing the questioning has a little different perspective. He understands that Jesus gives some pretty good answers. He seems to kind of know what he's doing and, and understands these, these answers, these questions quite well. So unlike the previous questions that really did have some animosity in them, this one genuinely didn't other than they were trying to trick him. And he asks of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus' answer, again, no less remarkable. We look at it as, well, of course those are the two greatest commandments because we've read them before, not because we would understand this. He answers the Shema, this great Hebrew prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these, Mark 12, 29. Now, again, this might seem obvious to us. Jesus just summed up the entire law of Moses in these two simple-to-understand commands. But for the leaders of that day and even the people of that day, it wasn't that simple. Because within their system, they had over 600 different laws and commands and rules and tons of oral tradition to go along with it, of things they had to follow and things they had to do. Remarkably, this question and the answer, this session ends very differently than all of the previous ones. You see, the guy asking the question this time doesn't walk away defeated at all by Jesus. Instead, he actually returns a comment after Jesus' answer. He says, well said, teacher. <laughs> Bravo. Nice job. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, that's a different answer. They're in agreement. And then Jesus follows up one more thing. And he says, man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, he hasn't said that to very many people in his ministry. Now, me, one of the reasons I like The Chosen so much is because it's these personal stories. And I would have loved to have been sitting there, standing there, watching as Jesus and this man look at each other eye to eye. And the man hears Jesus' answer and just looks at him. You can just see the look in his face like, wow. And then Jesus says, you know what, man? You're, you're close. Like, you're on to something, aren't you? And I wonder, did it begin there? Did it begin for that man right there? Was that the moment of his conversion, of his conversion to full belief? Seemingly for the first time, someone who challenged Jesus is actually almost on the same page, and that's good news. Was this one of the leaders that John was referring to earlier that believed but just privately? And now maybe he's kind of coming out into the open here and going, I think I agree with this guy, but he's afraid to follow him. You've got to remember, these are real people, real stories, real conversations that happen. There's real emotion tied to this. Does this moment change this man's heart? Jesus said he was close. <laughs> he was close. How many of you are close? How many of you watching or listening today are close to making that decision for Christ, but you just haven't done it yet? Today is the day. Now is the time. Jesus will tell us that here in just a moment. Jesus said this guy was close, but that's the thing. These aren't all the events that even happened in that one day. There were so many more things. It's not all the events that happened in this, this week, right? So Jesus asked a question of everybody there, and they couldn't give him an answer. So he begins to launch into a, a famous tirade, if you will, as he goes on to pronounce these seven woes or, or seven warnings 
toward the religious leaders. These are very famous things that Jesus spoke to them. These are points of contention, if you will, and they're not small points of contention. They're large points of contention that Jesus had with their teachings and the way they did life. The first two dealt with their evangelistic efforts, their ability to reach out to seek and save the lost. And the second dealt with their rituals, the second two woes. The next two all deal with their inner versus their outer appearance or purity, if you will. And the seventh one, he gets right to the point and he addresses their desire to murder him. <laughs> he strictly, completely calls them out in that moment. Now, one of the things that we got to remember is this. We talk a lot about the Pharisees in the church as if they're the bad guys, as if they're all evil, terrible, awful people. They were not. They were not. Just like within any system of leadership, guess what? There's always a few bad folks at the top that make the decision seemingly for everyone else. Because underneath those people, I guarantee you there were absolutely Pharisees that were purely devoted to their God, and they had offered their life as a service to Him. And my guess is that those people figured it out. While Jesus talked to the rest, and oh, you better believe they knew who He was talking to. That's why they hated him so much they wanted to murder him. Woe to you who shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying. That's from Matthew 23, 13. The Messiah was standing before them, and they were doing everything they could to try to prevent people from coming to him. They were shutting the door of heaven in people's faces to prevent anyone from believing in Jesus even threatening members of their own ruling body. It was that intense. The second one, the second one might sound like the worst. Again, these could all be a sermon series for sure. We're summing them up for you. But this one might sound like the worst. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and seas to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ouch. That seems like he's stepping on some toes. I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong. Here's the way that worked. As within a lot of places, when the pastor has a new convert, the pastor will often pour all of the time and energy into that new relationship and that new person. And Jesus is saying, you're forgetting about everybody else. Don't do that. And in particular, with a foreigner, they would bring them in, and they would try and try and try as hard as they could to get that foreigner to buy into their system of legality, of legalism. And as a result of their teachings, oftentimes their student would become even more legalistic than the teacher. And that's what Jesus is referring to with that child of hell comment. It was a serious, serious deal. The third has its origins all the way in Matthew 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus advises us, hey, don't make oaths. Don't swear by anything. Such a yes be yes and your no be no. Man, I wish those days would come back. Wouldn't you love that if somebody you talked to and they said, yeah, I'll do that or yeah, I'll do that? They would actually do it. That would be awesome. You know what? The only way you can change that is if you become that person. You, believer, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Just do that. Make a stand for who you are and for our Jesus. It will make a difference because nobody does that anymore. It could be a way we stand out. But he goes on, woe to you blind guides. You say if you swear by the temple, it means nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then of course... It's bound by oath, you fools. Ouch. Then he goes and switch gears is here, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your dill, your mint, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important things of law, justice, mercy, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting 
the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Now, they do such a great job is what he's saying. You're doing an awesome job with your, your offerings. You're doing a great job. You're giving a tenth of everything just as you should, but you're forgetting God's main focus to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what you should be doing, people. And oh yes, in the background, you should be giving a tenth of what you have as well. So Jesus goes on and he, and he makes fun of them in a very common way. He, he makes an illustration that's actually not funny to us, but would have been hilarious to the people watching and listening. See, both the gnat and the camel are unclean in the Jewish diet. You're not allowed to eat either. But Jesus says, you know, if you're eating a bowl of soup and you're going along, it's probably better that you get the camel out versus the gnat because the camel is going to be a lot harder to swallow than the gnat. And you could just imagine people laughing at the religious leaders like, that's stupid. Get the camel out of your bowl of soup. It's a funny illustration, all right? Everyone would have got it then. We don't understand it today. The fifth and sixth are ones that you might have heard before. They, be, they deal with who these leaders are on the inside, a fact, a reality that only two people know, God and the individual. He condemns them for being so well-polished and clean on the outside, but full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside. Then Jesus takes it a huge step further when he calls them those whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but they're full of everything unclean on the inside. He just called them a coffin. He just marked them as unclean individuals, and there was nothing further that they tried to distance themselves from than unclean individuals. And Jesus said, no, you are the unclean ones. Only God could know that. The final woe reveals their plot their desire to murder Jesus. Again, only those on the inside of this circle would have known this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for your prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the shedding of their blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are in fact the descendants of those that murdered the prophets. Oh, you do? Well, go ahead then and finish the job. He's telling them, hey, I know you're after me. Come on, bring it on. Let's go. Let's get this done. Your ancestors started this a long time ago. And then he gets really upset. This is his famous, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Yeah, there would have been some intensity to Jesus' words here. He wasn't just like, well, you know, you're just a bunch of snakes, guys. He would have been right up in their face. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, this is the second time in these woes that Jesus has mentioned a real place called hell. And we live in a world today where people who claim to believe in Jesus will say there is no hell. That's funny because Jesus believes there is and knows there is. And so I would dare you to try to ask those people where they get their foundation for their belief. Because Jesus is very certainly telling them that this is a real place. Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers, some of whom you will kill, others you will crucify, still others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. He's even prophesying the future beyond his own death as they pursue the disciples and other followers from town to town and banish them from their synagogues. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on this earth. This is an intense rebuke of the leaders, and it absolutely would have convicted them in some way. A, they could have repented of their sin, the error of their ways, and changed directions. Or B, it doubled down their efforts to get rid of him. We know which one won out. Now, a lot of people think Jesus is like enjoying these moments. Jesus doesn't enjoy these moments. These moments are intense, absolutely, but they are sad. He actually follows this up by confessing his sadness for the city's future. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets 
and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house has left you too, it left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus' heart is broken for the words he's speaking. He doesn't take joy in these criticisms. The people, the city, his heart is broken. And at this point, he's about to leave the temple for the last time. And as he's leaving, perfect Jesus moment, he sees one last teachable moment in the room. And some of you might know this famous scene where he sees this widow offering up her two small copper coins worth less than a penny today. And he stops everything and he says, hey guys, check that out. This widow it has nothing. And so he compares her small sacrificial offering, maybe all that she had, he says, to that of the religious leaders who try to make as much noise as they possibly can when they throw their offering into the can. And he says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury of heaven than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. He continues to show his disciples the way, even as they leave the room for the last time. He shows them the disparity between the norms of this world and the ways of the Savior. Now, over the next two days, Jesus would stop being around the big crowds. He would spend his time just investing in his disciples and a few close other people. He tells them about the destruction of the temple. He even talks to them about the end times, the end end times. It had to be a little confusing as he talks about the time of his second coming, because usually when you're talking about coming, you're not talking about the people that you're with. And they would have looked at him like, what do you mean you're coming? You're here. What's going on? There's no way they could have possibly understood what he was saying in that moment. He shares with them four parables that are all having to do with the same idea, the idea of being ready, being ready for his second coming. He will come unexpectedly. For some, he'll come later than they thought he would. Unfortunately for others, he'll come too soon, but it'll be perfectly timed according to his will. He tells them, keep a lookout, keep a lookout for the kingdom of God is coming. And while you're here, while you're here, be good stewards of all that you have, because God is the one that's given you that. There's a time of judgment absolutely when Christ returns. He tells them these things. And at that time, He says the people will be separated as the sheeps are from the goats. The sheep on the right will enter into the kingdom of God. The goats on the left will once again be sent to the fire, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Third time, Jesus mentions the place that doesn't exist. Interesting. (laughs) A lot of power in his words. In just two days, in just two days, Jesus is going to meet with his closest friends in that famous upper room scene where he shares with them the Passover feast for the very last time. Now, I can't wait to share with you the details of that Passover feast. This this feast that goes all the way back to Moses and the exodus of the Hebrew nation out of Egypt. Every element of that Passover feast actually directly relates to, you guessed it, Jesus. And it's so easy to find Christ in the Passover. So what we're doing next week is something really cool. I'm excited to be here with you for it. A man by the name of Shmuel, yes, he's not from around here, 
Abramson. He's from a place called Israel, okay? Um, about 30, young 30s. He lives in New York City with his brothers currently. Went to Moody Bible Institute. He's coming as a part of Jews for Jesus to share with us a presentation called Christ in the Passover. And it's going to be super cool. Some of you might have seen it before. I know I have, okay? But it's worth sharing with all of you if you haven't. It is an incredible thing. He's also looking forward to coming this way because he hasn't been out of his apartment really at all in the last year because he lives in New York City. I said, where do you want to go out to eat? <laughs> Yes, I did. You want to go out? Let's go out. Let's go do something. Um, get out and about, okay? I'm so excited to share with this, this with you, all right? So in the next seven days till we meet again all together, I want you to think about this. Last week of Jesus, oh, open your scriptures. Don't worry about going back and forth between each version. Just pick one of the gospels. Read through those last seven days of Jesus' life and see what God pulls out for you personally. I don't know how he uses what we share up here with you. I don't know which element is the one that connects with you. So open the word for yourself. Take one with you if you don't have it. Pick that story and just read that last week and see how God chooses to speak to you. Because this last week was full of everything. Praise, teaching, confrontation, celebration, sadness, and ultimately betrayal, suffering, and death. As Jesus fulfills his mission, and the one thing that you got to remember is that his mission was for you completely 100% for you. And anybody you ever shared this story with, make sure they know that this story wasn't for the world. It was for them. It's so important for them to understand that because when we talk about it being for everyone, and it is, absolutely, they get lost in the everyone. It's for them. Father God, as we get the privilege, I, I, I'm, every time I read from your word and study from your word and prepare from your word, I just I just can't believe that I have access to it. I can't believe that somehow this has been saved for humanity, that somehow through your provision, the most attacked book in the history of the world survives and even thrives in this culture that we exist today. I think we as Americans maybe take it too much for granted. We don't realize how blessed we are to have access, free and complete access to the Word of God I thank you for those men that contributed to this word over so, so many years, and likely those women too. There's so many stories in here that would have come from those females' perspectives. Father, thank you for giving us these, for those men and women that, that helped to put this all together throughout the millennia now to preserve it for us so that we can share it yet again with an unbelieving world that doesn't know you and hasn't heard your story. As we enter into this Easter season, may we never forget that all that you did was for me. Father, make it personal for each and every individual as we studied. And Father, if there's anyone, anyone that doesn't know you yet, those last words from that last section of, of the being prepared, being ready for Jesus' coming, I pray that they get ready. I pray that the Spirit moves in them today to be prepared. That if you were to walk through the clouds right now, that we know without a shadow of a doubt we would spend eternity with you in your kingdom. And Father, if there's anybody that doesn't have that certainty, then I pray that they come forward today and find it, claim it for themselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray.